Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. As I mentioned last week, the Stoker Awards are fast approaching. We're fixing to feature those frights on the podcast closer to the awards date. But we've also got another special treat in the works that I'm hoping to share with you in the coming weeks. I don't want to spill too much, but we've wrangled a special excerpt from maybe one of the most anticipated horror novels of the year so far a landmark novel that's been years in the making. I had the opportunity to sit down with the author for a chat, which I've recorded as well. It was an awesome conversation full of twists and turns, and that may have unearthed some little-known tidbits about him and his creative process, too. Patrons will be getting the first listen to this exclusive bonus in the next couple of weeks, as well as the full version of the interview. So, if you've been on the fence about signing up, I'm hoping this may just be the push you need to tumble into our dark embrace and pledge your support. Of course, on top of this bonus, Patreon supporters get access to a custom audio feed that includes ad-free versions of every new episode and other bonus content as well. Our current story, Henry James's classic The Turn of the Screw, is really starting to heat up. So if you don't want to miss out on all of the unsettling action, head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. You'll be able to listen back to all 10 episodes released so far and get new ones delivered right to your podcast feed each week. Not to mention early access to this exclusive excerpt, as well as the full audio of our interview. 
Speaking of new content, we've had a hell of a submissions run, and our tanks are almost full for another season. We'll be closing our current submissions period a week from today, which, fittingly, happens to land on Friday the 13th. So if you've been hoarding any exceptional terrifying tales in a cobweb box in the attic, or hidden in a dark corner of your basement, now's the time to unleash them. TalesToTerrify.com slash submissions is where you'll find all the details you need to submit. But for now, we've got some tales lined up and ready to go. And I think it's time we get on with our episode. This week we have a pair of stories coming your way, about the trials and tribulations of babysitting, and an old crusader who gets exactly what he deserves. Our first story for the evening comes from Tracy Cross. Tracy Cross hails from Cleveland, Ohio. She lives in Washington, D.C. and loves it. She has been published in several anthologies, including Summer Shorts, Big Book of Bootleg Horror, and De-Evolution Z Horror Magazine. And she was recently featured on the New American Legends website. She was awarded the Boston Accent Literary Journal Prize in 2016 and is an active member of the Horror Writers Association, Ladies of Horror Fiction, and the Capitol Hill Writers Group. She does not push children downstairs, but she avoids basements and open closet doors after dark. Children of the Night, join me for Tracy Cross's Don't Go There first published in Midnight and Indigo, February 2020. Bedtime, the little girl I babysat grabbed my shirt and whispered, Don't go there. Go where? I picked her up and walked through the minimalist-styled kitchen with its stark cabinets and farmhouse sink to the open living room and up the stairs. She nestled her head into my shoulder. The basement. Don't go there. Why not? I walked down the hallway to her room. I pushed the door open to an explosion of pink. She had a twin bed covered with pink stuffed animals. Toys cluttered the floor and her drawings hung on the pink striped walls. Daddy keeps the door locked. He says the monsters live down there. She was serious. I pulled back the sheets with one hand and placed her on the bed. Yeah? Now go to sleep. She made a small noise and pointed down. Uh, under the bed, you said you'd check. Doesn't make much sense for me to check since your dad has the monsters locked in the basement. I pulled out my phone and switched on the flashlight. I'll check because I promise. Then you go to sleep, right? We made a pinky promise. Pinky promise! <laughs> she squealed as she held up her tiny hand. Our pinkies made the promise, and I looked under the bed. I passed my flashlight back and forth for drastic effect. Mm, no monsters under here! Closet! They hide in the closet, too! Gotcha! Check in the closet! I walked across the room and opened the closet door. The closet was filled with pink dresses, all lined up in a row. Well? 
There are some killer dresses in here, but no monsters. I turned off the flashlight and slipped my phone into my back pocket. I closed the door. Time for sleep. I stepped over the toys and checked the window. It was locked. Walked over to the bed and kissed her forehead. Good night, pumpkin. Sweet dreams. Sweet dreams, Aurora. Don't go to the basement, okay? She stared at me with seriousness I'd never seen on a child's face before. I won't. I'm going downstairs and I'm going to wait for your mommy and daddy. I know I lied. I was going to go check the basement. What kind of monsters did her dad have down there? Maybe humans? Okay, now sleep. I flicked the light switch off and closed the door. I waited outside her room a few minutes before I started to hear snoring. I wandered down the hall to the parents' room. No surprise. Minimalist influences in there, too. A bed, dresser, nightstand on each side of the bed. The mirrored closet doors opened and revealed clothes lined in order by color, white to gray to black, and style, dresses, skirts, short skirts, pants on her side. I lay on the bed and the mattress was firm. I rolled over and opened the drawer on one side of the dress stand. I saw a pair of keys labeled basement. Monsters, right. I grabbed the keys. I slid the drawer closed and I twirled the ring around my finger as I walked out and down the hall. I listened outside and heard my pumpkin sleeping. I checked my watch. Ample enough time for the parents to come home. I'll clean up and watch some television, if they have one. We ate pizza out of the box for dinner and ice cream with chocolate syrup for dessert. We left a mess in the kitchen. I sighed and tossed the keys on the counter. I cleaned up the boxes, put the dishes in the dishwasher, and wiped down the counters. I had the door to the side of the counter. The door to the basement. No, 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 no. I mumbled as I strolled over to the sofa and flopped down. I found the remote and turned on something. Sound echoed around me and I found the huge TV. I watched something about sharks, then the history of oceans, and I heard it. Oh, like someone fell. Something fell over. The sound was beneath me. All the crime shows I ever watched rushed into my head. I knew that no black person would ever go and Scooby-Doo that shit. Nope. Nope. I can sacrifice a child if it comes up. I can sacrifice a kid. No. What am I thinking? It's just something that can come up here and probably kill you. The headlines in the paper tomorrow will read, Monster comes up from the basement and black girl sacrificed child and runs away. I sat back and pressed my hand to my heart to stop the pounding through my chest. I walked over to the fridge and grabbed water. I chugged it and walked back over to the sofa. And as I sat, the lights went out. The blue light from the television screen filled the room. Shit. Think, think. Uh, the, the parents said that the lights were on a timer. So, in theory, some lights should be on. I looked around and there were lights on around the perimeter of the huge open room. Who lives like this? I heard it again, and it was closer. It was coming up the stairs, I think. Thump. I hate this house. Only thing I needed was it for it to rain. A serious thunderstorm, and there it is. A crack of lightning across the night sky. Okay, uh... Made my way to the kitchen. See, everything I think that is happening is happening. How about some lights? I raised my arms and nothing happened. Shit. The light over the stove was on. I saw a light switch by the sink. 
I reached for it and realized it could be the garbage disposal. I found another switch further away from the sink. I flipped it on and the patio lights illuminated outside the house. Though the huge gala window was in the kitchen, I saw lights illuminating the entire backyard as the sky opened up and rain poured, wind whipping and tossing everything not nailed down. I looked at the deck with furniture nicer than anything I'd ever owned, and the pool, which I should have used. The grass looked really green. Maybe they have a person. I stopped. I heard a noise. A creaking sound? Like a door opening sound? Who would be down here? Who would- And that's when I noticed the keys were gone. The keys were on the counter, and now they're gone, and the door to the basement is open. Shit! Bump. I'm not Nancy Drew. I'm not in the Scooby-Doo gang, but I will be damned if this door stayed open. Nothing coming up here to get me, monsters or not. And the background chat about the aliens on the sci-fi channel on TV didn't help much. I'll just make my way to the door, close it, and run to the sofa. I was sure I'd left those keys on the counter. I shouldn't have grabbed them anyways. Ugh. Whatever. It is what it is. I slid around the counter, and the door seemed like it was ten miles away. I hyped myself up, bouncing on the balls of my feet like a kickboxer ready to strike. <sighs> okay. Alright. Now or never. Let's go. I ran across the rest of the counter and stopped dead in my tracks. Pumpkin, what are you doing down here? You should be sleeping. Great. Now to save the kid. Why'd I let the kid psych me out more than the monster in the basement anyways? No such thing. The lights flicked on. She stood at the top of the stairs, by the open basement door. She rubbed her eyes with her tiny fists. She looked so small standing next to the door. Come on, baby. Uh, let, let's go back upstairs. I reached out to grab her and saw something in her hand. I want some water, Aurora. I'm so thirsty. She looked at me and tilted her head. Can you come get me? The monsters are coming. I watched her glance to the darkness of the basement. She didn't turn her head towards me. It swiveled as she whispered, Water. Half of me wanted to forget this kid. Then I heard my grandma whisper about how I needed to do the right thing, grab the kid, close the door, and swan dive over the sofa. Well, n not the swan dive part. Pumpkin, um, I'm coming. I tried to convince myself more than anything. It happened in slow motion. My bare feet tried to gain some traction on the linoleum as I ran over to scoop her in my arms. That's when everything went wrong. I bent down to pick her up and she grabbed my legs. She held my knees together and twisted me towards the open door. I fell backwards as I reached up and gripped the sides of the doorframe. Please, Jesus, Pumpkin, what are you doing? I yelled. Even the monsters have to eat Aurora? She growled, her voice getting low. Monsters get hungry, too. Something was behind me, and it was close. It huffed in my hair. I couldn't go out like this. I was going to bring the whole fucking door down with me. I held onto the sides as something wet and smelly, clawed, pulled at me. No! Pumpkin, help me! I'm gonna beat your ass when I- she closed the door as it wrapped itself completely around me. My eyes were last. I watched the light in front of me slowly disappear. Monsters gotta eat, too. <laughs> she giggled. 
I felt hot breath on the side of my face as the light collapsed to darkness. That was Tracy Cross's Don't Go There, as read by Andy Ochoa. Andy is a 20-something-year-old with a penchant for avoiding her fellow man in favor of the furry four-legged types. Her hobbies include listening to spooky podcasts, hiding in the dark, and occasionally burying a body or two when she isn't coloring. Thank you, Andy. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Our second story tonight comes from Robert A. Francis. Rob Francis is an academic and writer based in London. He started writing short fantasy and horror in 2014, mainly on the train to work and in the early hours of the morning. His most recent horror stories have appeared in The Arcanist and Apparition Lit Magazine and the anthologies Tales of Blood and Squalor by Dark Cloud Press and Under the Full Moon's Light by Owl Hollow Press. He is an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association and lurks on Twitter at RAF Urbanico. Listen with me, children of the night, to Robert A. Francis's Hear No Evil, a Tales to Terrify original. Talbot always carries a small sickle, with which he removes the ears of any devils that might cross his path. It is a gospel truth that once a devil has had its ears cut away, it can no longer hear the depraved orders of the serpent, and its torment will end. Father Culpepper, Talbot's old regimental chaplain, had told him so outside the walls of Acre in the dark hours before they stormed the city and saw what was inside. The old priest seemed troubled by what he was trying to impart, hesitant to tell the sacred truth, but Talbot understood then 
and he understands now. Even devils can be saved. In the years since Acre, he has been consistently surprised so many take the form of children. The better to blend, he supposes, to hide amongst the ignorant and the easily led. Wolf as lamb. But he can see. Oh, yes, they can't hide from Talbot, and a man must have a purpose. Idle hands invite the serpent in, after all. Talbot walks the fens almost at random, following whichever path he sees fit, working as needed, hunting when he can, through woodland pastures, over streams and hills, marching, the sickle always to hand. In the hot afternoon he comes upon a crossroad. Unable to read the words carved into the signpost, he instead examines the paths, one leading to the north and the other east. The decision is easy. The northern path is wide and well-trodden, with crushed stones embedded into mud. The eastern is narrow and part overgrown. East it is. Devils hide best in the most remote settlement. There are easy pickings there. Cotgrave, he says aloud, to the fallow fields and summer air. His dust-ravaged throat is parched, as always, and he is reminded to take a pinch of ale from his army canteen. He's had it a long time, almost as long as the sickle at his belt, taken from Culpepper's dead hand almost as long as the scars that weave across his face and arms. Birds sing and squabble in the low grass. He listens for a moment, knowing that the beauty of their singing hides its violent meaning. Then he sets off, his step heavy on the dry grass and the sickle slapping against his thigh with each stride. The birds fall silent as he passes. The sun is high over the fields, and Albert is bored. He shouldn't be, because he has no chores to do while Dad is weeding the strips at the commons, and there is Riddle Brook and the shade of Horner's Copse to scratch around in. But little Lydia is with him, and Dad says she's his responsibility now that Mom has gone to the church ground. At five, with him a manly nine, there's not at all much they can do together that won't bore the other. So he sits in the shade of a beech tree and watches her play with her raggy doll, the one Mom sewed for her when she was a babe. It's been rent and mended over and over again since she was old enough to walk, but no more. Dad's hopeless with a needle and thread. Albert's tried himself, but he can't fix his mind on things so easily, and he gets muddled and angry. Dad thinks he's a touch addled, but such fine work is hard. And if Dad can't do it, how can Albert be expected to? He leans against the trunk, the summer heat pulling him down, and thinks on falling asleep, until Lydia starts on at him. Albert, let's go look for hoppers in the grass. Albert shakes his head. Hunting grasshoppers would bore the saints themselves to tears, Lydia. Let me sit. Not for the first time, he wishes his sister away. Lydia grabs his hand and pulls. Come on, 
Just for a while. Don't be boring, Albert. He stands, resigned to another beetle hunt in the sun, until a dark shape moving in the distance gives him an idea. Wait. Yeoman Sadler brought Achilles down to the paddock yesterday. How about we go see him? Lydia peers at her brother suspiciously. The hoss? Albert nods. Hand in hand, they walk across the untilled fields to the paddock, its edges fenced with thick poles of birch and ash. The gate is held fast with a loop of rope, and it takes him a few moments to wiggle loose. Then, they're in the long grass with the stallion, its formidable presence more disconcerting now that it's only a few dozen paces away. It lifts its head to look at them, then returns to grazing. Albert closes the gate and hooks the rope around the fence once more. Achilles is some animal, huge and powerful, coat as dark as the night, but with a streak of white in its mane. Yeoman Sadler plans to put him to stud. Albert has heard Dad talking about it. Albert isn't exactly sure what that means, but he thinks it's good news for Achilles. He wonders if he might be able to ride horses one day, look after them maybe. Maybe Yeoman Sadler would take him on as a stable boy, or even a groom. He doesn't want to toil in the fields like Dad. He wants to do something more meaningful, if he can. Lydia is timid, so close to the horse. Albert takes her hand and leads her forward. The horse watches them in silence. It's all right. There, there. There, there. Albert isn't sure if he's trying to calm the horse, Lydia, or himself. Achilles seems profoundly unconcerned about their presence and turns away. Lydia hangs back, entranced by the horse's swishing tail. Albert walks to stand beside Achilles, his heart beating faster now. Up close, Albert gently places his hand on the horse's neck, wondering at the softness of the coat beneath his fingers. He moves to stand in front of the animal and looks up at its elongated face and wide, twitching nostrils. It's the biggest creature he has ever seen. He wishes he had something to feed it. He raises his hand to stroke the horse's mane. Lydia gives a little gasp. Achilles rears, sending Albert sprawling, and canters away across the paddock. Albert looks to his sister. She's lying on the ground. He runs to her, heart aching in his breast. Lydia is pale and very still. Albert lifts her dress to reveal her small, round stomach, a purple hoofprint raw against a spreading patch of angry red. He can't think. Possibilities race through his head, each as confusing as the last. He should run to Dad and get help, but it would take time, and he can't leave Lydia here in the paddock. Achilles might trample her, and he can't carry her all the way to the commons. He slides his arms under her head and legs and lifts her with some effort. She doesn't respond. Unsteady with the weight, Albert crosses the paddock to the gate putting Lydia down while he unhooks the rope before dragging her through. The sun is high and hot. He can't leave her here. 
He doesn't dare to, even to get help. He scans the horizon, hoping someone might be passing by. At the end of the paddock stands Horner's cops, cool and dark. With everyone tending the strips, the wood will be empty now. It seems like a good place to put her. Albert lifts his sister once more. Talbot follows the path through the fields of grass and clover, coming at last to a small creek. In the distance, there are open strips of crops and patches of woodland. Wood smoke drifts from a village half hidden behind a small hill dusted with elms. He should be able to find some work here while he looks to do God's work. He's used to laboring. He has been able to do little else since the war. Talbot is a simple man with simple skills. He stops to drink again. His throat is always dry, even though he's not much given to talking. He thinks it's the sharp dryland dust he swallowed during his years away, fighting the Moors. Before he realized that the true enemy was everywhere, hidden inside all kinds of people, so many people, even his little Esme, God save her. The ale is gone, he must find more. With a sigh, he steps into the river. The water is cool on his hands, and he fills the canteen. He can hear the Lord whispering to him as the current runs over the shallows, telling him to search, to seek, to save. But the day is hot, and he feels weary. A jagging itch behind his eyes forebodes a bad headache to come. Across the creek, a copse of hornbeam and oaks looks dark and inviting. He should rest. Talbot wades across, treading carefully amongst the pebbles of the riverbed, and hauls himself onto the far bank. The woods are welcoming, though once more the birds stop singing as he enters, wary of his intrusion, sensitive to his presence. A different sound brings him to a halt, labored breathing, and the noise of something moving in the undergrowth. He steps behind a tree and waits, watching. And there, a boy, slim and brown-haired, dressed in threadbare clothes, moving with his back to Talbot. He is dragging something, and as he meanders across the woodland floor, Talbot sees it is a girl just as thin as the boy, but pale, her dark hair spread across the ground behind her, embedded with twigs and leaves. She looks a little like Esme, and his heart grinds painfully for a moment as he remembers again how he saved his daughter, and what came after. What had the boy done? Hello, lad. The boy gives a yelp and turns, his face almost as pale as the girl's. He stares at Talbot as if he isn't sure what he is seeing. Talbot points at the girl. Is she all right? The boy's mouth opens and closes a few times. He looks like he might be listening for something. It, it wasn't my fault. She, I took her. It was an accident. I need to get help. Talbot nods. It's clear what happened. He has only just arrived, and already the Lord has given him a chance to be useful. You didn't mean to, lad, I know, 
Hurt her by accident, did you? Just playing together, I bet, messing around in the fields, and a sudden thought occurs. A temptation. Something to end the boredom. He steps toward the boy, and the sickle dances at his hip. He whispers to you, doesn't he? The great serpent distracts you and fills your head with terrible things. You're always getting in trouble, aren't you? And you can't help it. He rests his hands on the sickle handle, worn and smooth and comfortable. It has to be a sickle, for the act to have meaning. This sickle, reap to save. That's what Culpepper said. I can help, lad. Once the ears are gone, he has no power over you. The boy doesn't move. His mouth opens and closes silently, while tears of guilt and shame run down his cheeks. Talbot feels the fierce pride that always comes before he does God's work, the determination washing through him. He has saved so many poor devils from the serpent over the years. The first were disguised as wretches in the streets of Acre and he saved them in Culpepper's name after the good old man had fallen, transfixed by a Moorish spear. And since then, scores, even his own Esme, though that had been a hard test. His daughter's true nature had only shown itself once he returned from the war, after his wife had fled and left the deviled child behind for him to raise. God had insisted she be saved, and so it was, for a time. Talbert's work is good and righteous. The Lord's voice rings loud as a bell in his head. He reaches for the boy. Albert is mesmerized by this man before him. He is big, and a terrible anger smolders inside him, just below the surface. Scars, thick and pale as roots, cross his face, where they snake through his beard, they turn the graying hairs a sharp white. The stranger's eyes are dark under heavy brows, crazed red from lack of sleep or too much drink. There is fear there, mixed with the rage. Albert has seen the same look in his dad's eyes in the month since Mom died. The man grimaces. Perhaps it is meant as a smile. He reaches to his belt and removes the iron sickle hanging there the metal tarnished, but its edge is bright and sharp. Slowly, like he is reaching for a skittish horse, the man extends his hand to Albert and cups his chin. The skin of his palm and fingers is as rough as sand. I just want to help, he rasps. Abbott! Behind the man, Albert sees Lydia stand both hands on her stomach, then falls to her knees. Her eyes are wild and rolling. She is terrified. Albert's gut lurches. He hesitates, squirming with indecision. Abbott! His name is born strangled from her lips. She can't say it properly. The man turns to look at Lydia, and his eyes widen in shock. His hands shake, the sickle quivering. Abbott? Lydia lifts her gaze to the green canopy and snatches a blue sky above. Daddy! Daddy, help! She vomits blood all down her dress. 
For a long moment she stares at the mess, confused, then falls forward into a patch of bluebells. The man drops the sickle and falls to his knees. Albert watches, still mesmerized, as he crawls towards Lydia, croaking, No! 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 The man lifts her, cradles her in his arms. Blood covers her dress and drips from her nose and ears. Esme, I'm sorry, lass. I had to save you. I had to. The Lord told me, Esme. I fought for him, and he speaks to me. The man starts sobbing, great shuddering gasps that shake his entire body and make Lydia flail like Raggy when she scolds him. I hear him even now. Albert has never seen such an outpouring of grief. The stranger has lost all reason. This is how Dad will react when he sees Lydia, or will he be worse? The stranger's sob make Albert want to cover his ears or run from the cops, never to return. Albert spies the sickle lying among the wildflowers. Sunlight catches its edge, drawing his eye along the curve. He's used one before, helping Dad at the strips to come harvest time. He's not quite sure what's happening, but he thinks he can help. The taste of blood is strong in Albert's throat as he runs up the path to the commons, chest heaving with effort. Dad stands with half a dozen men and women from the village, tearing out the weeds and tossing them to the field edge. Dad looks tired, his eyes shadowed under his hat, back bent and covered with sweat. He will be angry but Albert knows what to do. Dad, Dad, quick, it's Lydia, in Horner's Cops, and there's a man. Dad looks up, then breaks into a run towards Albert. The others follow. Dad doesn't stop to ask Albert any questions. He just rushes past and sprints down the path to the wood. His hat falls, but he pays it no mind. Albert follows as fast as he can. As he pauses at the paddock, he stops, climbing over the fence to receive raggedy from the long grass. His sister's doll is warm from the sun. He runs faster, the doll tight in his hand. He reaches the copse just after the others, his legs shaking. The villagers stand transfixed, staring in disbelief at Lydia and the stranger. He is sitting with his back to an oak, a dreamy smile on his face as if he is at peace. He gazes at the branches above, oblivious to the arrival of Albert and the others. His cheeks, chin, and shoulders are caked in blood, and there is only raw red flesh where his ears used to be. The blood is clotted thick in the holes that remain. The man cradles Lydia in his arms. She is limp and so, so pale. He sighs happily and closes his eyes. Albert lets Raggedy fall to the floor. No one sees. No one will know they were in the paddock. Dad draws the knife at his belt and steps towards the man. The others see this and do the same. No words are spoken. None are needed. Albert slips his hand into his trouser pocket and strokes the rough cloth handkerchief there. 
He can feel the shape of the ears wrapped inside. He wonders if it's true, if devils, or people, or both, can be saved in such ways. The world is a strange place, after all, and Albert does not fully understand its mysteries. He'll never forget the expression on the man's face as he started cutting. Shock and relief intertwined. And then, peace. It felt meaningful. As the shouting starts, he crosses the glade and nudges the bloodied sickle deep into the tangle of brambles with his foot. He will return to collect it later. He knows he will have need of it again someday. That was Robert A. Francis's Hear No Evil, as read by our own Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up. Or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you'd pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews and ratings are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. It helps us expose more victims, I mean listeners, to our dark influence. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we probe the shadows for more Tales to Terrify. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.